It's funny. They say that there are no atheists in the foxhole. There are definitely no libertarians in a fox. During a bank run. <laughs> During yeah. a bank run. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting it asleep. On episode 45, we will talk about emerging India and their new wolf warriors, why the U.S. needs more child workers, the death of the metaverse, and thanks, Putin, the end of Brexit. And later, we'll talk for the second time to Doro Bomanpoli about why business and human rights is coming back stronger than ever post-pandemic. Okay, she says it was always strong. And why she was surprised to find her bike in Geneva. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So listen responsibly. Wait, that's the end. That's the end. That's the end. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to episode 45. You will be happy to know, I think, at this point, if you're still listening, that it is the atomic number of rhodium, a very rare, silvery white, hard, consistent, resistant transition metal. It's a noble metal and member of the platinum group, which is also probably means it was used in somebody's watch. Funnily enough, 45 is the title of the 2002 song by Elvis Costello. Not my favorite, but I'll take it. And 1745, so the Jacobite rising in Great Britain, which is actually why nobody is named Jacob in Great Britain since then. I should also mention that you can and should subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or stranger sitting next to you on the bus if you like. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, subscribe to all of them. And why not stop there? Just leave us a review as well. Moving on, Manchester United is still for sale. Rob will be happy to know. The prices is plummeting as they continue to lose matches. It's not a buyer's market, which is, I guess, good. Um, listeners should also know that I did get a boo-boo on my head today. Youch. Yeah, I had a, a fatty lipid deposit removed from my head, so I don't know why she started taking out the frontal lobe. Yeah, that's what they told you. Yeah, yes. but it's a chip. They put a chip in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thought I get you. I'm actually a test subject for Elon Musk's new venture where they put the chips in the brain so you can talk to, uh, you can do a Twitter Spaces live. Talk to birds. No, you yep. can do a Twitter Spaces live without logging in. <laughs> Thank God the metaverse is dead. Did you know that the Oscars also happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really enjoy Oscar. He's that guy in the in the trash can. I just liked it because Sesame Bre Street. Because Brendan Fraser, who was like the guy growing up when I was just in my formative years, and by that I mean like 10 or 12, was in his prime. Now he's apparently back and uh, he won Best Actor. I guess you don't watch the Oscars. I didn't actually. The two films that got the most, which was The Whale and then Everything Everywhere from Everything from all, all over the place. I've never heard of that film. I was mainly looking at who was wearing which watches. I thought it was really heartening that they nominated Top Gun 2 for really anything. I thought that shows it's still a commercial. Movies are still out there to make money. What did you think they were there for? Because I thought it was about art or perhaps excellence. But it's not that great a movie. Well, you could do both and blow stuff up at the same time. And make some money. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know you enjoyed Aliens too more than Aliens. So aliens. Aliens. <laughs> just, just an S. There's not even an apostrophe in there. There's no two or an apostrophe or a semicolon, just aliens. Anyway, so what have you been hearing, Rob? We've had a very significant piece of listener feedback, which I think we really need to pay close attention to. And I quote, tell Adrian the jokes about your age are annoying and not actually very funny. This from a completely unbiased listener. It's my brother who's in his very, very early 60s who provided this, and he said the Adrian was a result of a spell check. 
So it wasn't addressed to me then, because my name's not Adrian. <laughs> Adrian. So I could just hey Adrian. I could just disregard that whole message. <laughs> I think it's a very important thing to take. We have all sorts of listeners. I tell myself every time we record an episode that okay, the jokes is, it's getting kind of old, but then it's like asking Hakeem Olajuwon to stop doing the skyhook. He did stop. He's now retired. <laughs> <laughs> That's another age joke. Okay, moving on. You know, I can't put product in my hair till Thursday till for four days. Think if that happened to McConaughey. I can't do anything. I can't wash it. I can't put product in it for four days until the stitches are, are removed. It's pretty crazy, right? That is crazy. That's and like, uh, yeah, so people will see you. They might think, ah, oh, he's already gone homeless. Is he divorced? No, he's fine. That's like asking a, a marathon runner not to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my head is neither here nor there. It's not brain injury related, which is, I guess, a positive. But we also have an IP issue, which a listener advised us of. Yeah. Yeah. So our, one of our listeners, Nathan Lutz, wrote us, and we actually want to thank him for advising us, that Golden Corral also apparently uses the tradesplaining jingle. And I don't know how that happened. Golden Corral, if you're wondering, like me, seems to be an all-you-can-eat type buffet-style restaurant in the South, yeah. which is pretty narrowing it down because I thought that was all of them. Yeah, that's uh, maybe a lot of them, but I think if we get Michelle out there, Michelle, maybe you can contact them and in order to use our jingle, they could give us free food. We'll name the segment Gen Z on the street and we'll see <laughs> Gen what Z happens. at the buffet. Gen Z at the buffet. But you know, it's not just Golden Corral. I think it was a while ago that one of these Chinese phone brands, Oppo, I think it was Oppo, uses the same jingle. Somebody sent me that too. Yeah. We should be in for a huge payout. That's IP infringement. I'm sure we should take it to the courts there. Yeah, I think we'll win. <laughs> I think we're going to be pretty strong in this. Well then, let's jump right into the important stories this episode, because as always, there's plenty to talk about. So the first is an update from the labor market, and apparently it might not be COVID's fault because this thing is continuing. So Bloomberg says there is some evidence that U.S. worker shortages are actually a result of demographics that predated the pandemic. So like we've said many times on here, that serves as an accelerator of trends that were already there. And despite already getting kicked where the sun don't shine economically, the U.S. industry still seems to be on a hiring binge, even though we can still hear tech wailing in the background about the job cuts. <laughs> They've added 311 jobs last month, so which is a big deal. And then also, apparently, U.S. states are relaxing curbs on child labor because apparently they're cheaper and easier to work with. Yeah, they so, fit into smaller spaces as well. Tell us what's happening there, Rob. So Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders actually signed a law loosening child labor protections. I think it's being considered in Iowa and other states as well. So it's literally saying children can work longer, they can work younger, they can work with fewer protections. You could see this as sort of Republican kind of fantasy or Republican, you know, evil. But in fact, it does seem to be a kind of tendency when labor markets are tight there's literally industries that are lobbying to work with younger children and having them work not just summer vacations, but nights and weekends and so on. And there's a lot of justifications for it. Kids need jobs, for instance. Like when you say kids, like how old are we talking? 15, 16. Okay. Uh, of course, uh, farm work has always been accepted, but also you and I could work at 16 doing a paper route or something. But I think if this was in Iowa, they're actually literally considering relaxing restrictions on working in meat packing houses. So you could work it everywhere in the meat packing house except where the saws are actually buzzing. I wish they had this when I was a kid because in New York in the meat packing district you couldn't get in anywhere unless you were 21 and um, yeah, exactly. filthy rich. Is that the same thing? It's the same thing. And we've been talking about the unions a lot, but there's Starbucks, everybody's favorite. Meet me uh, at the Gansevoort Hotel. 
<laughs> everybody's Starbucks, everybody's favorite coffee chain is actually trying to bust unions. And Howard Schultz thinks he should be president. The guy is literally getting on national media and saying why unions are not a good idea. So Same kids, with Bezos. kids can and should work longer, but yeah. they draw the line at they can't join a union. They should not join a union. <laughs> not until they're 22. So tell us about this worker shortage. Is it seen that it is the result of demographics or is this just us? Well, we've been told for a long time, birth rates are low, you know, immigration's tight. So there was going to be a tighter labor market. Then COVID came and kind of interrupted the flow on statistics. But the Fed has been kicking industry for months for getting on for a year. And people are still hiring. And what they're saying is, it's just simply this need for workers. There's simply a demographic situation where people are retiring. They need to replace folks. So it's quite an interesting kind of tipping point potentially that's so that we don't see necessarily people hiring or lots of open positions as an inflationary pressure but it's actually a reality i don't think the answer to that is just put the kids in the factories because they, really, they fit into small spaces i mean come on <laughs> that'll only serve certain industries and very niche types of industries but i can see the obvious answer being put forward is okay more immigration but we know i guess from the past 10 years or so how that usually goes in terms of socioeconomic or sociopolitical, I should say, tensions, right? So it's just going to be more of the same. I saw a really interesting article in Foreign Affairs which said the one thing that we're not allocating well and the reason for automation is because we don't allocate human power well. You can't take where there's surplus and take it to places where there's a shortage. So people are using a lot of money and a lot of capital to design things, to automate things that humans could do quite easily. So we're eradicating our own jobs because we don't want to move to South Dakota. And for me, this was fine until ChatGPT because it could eradicate middle management. Yeah, that's where you draw the line. This is enough. Okay, this Howard. is really okay. enough. Okay. I simply can't have this. Anyway, I guess the other thing that we wanted to talk about is that interest rates, because it's everybody's favorite thing to talk about these days. We knew that interest rates rising would have an effect. But we've recently seen over the last couple of days, particularly at the end of last week, that SVB's collapse has potentially shown a wider possible impact. So as of recording this, HSBC has bought the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank. It's to be seen what will happen to the US portion of it, or the rest of it, I should say. The US government has said that depositors will be made whole, so nobody will lose out on their money. So all those cries that we heard from Silicon Valley over the weekend will will sort of can subside. Chewy can't make its payroll this month. <laughs> Chewy. <laughs> Nobody's going to get their dog toys on time. <laughs> on a more serious note, well, they both are serious. It is the second largest bank failure in history behind 2008 collapse of Washington Mutual. And we remember Lehman Brothers as well before that. As we said, they overtook the control of the bank over the weekend, stopped depositors from pulling out their money. And many, though, are brushing off the idea that there's a there is a systemic risk to the banking system, despite what many all caps tweets I saw on Twitter said. And I forget if I showed them with you, Rob, but I'll definitely do that later. There are concerns over the futures of sort of high-flying technology companies and crypto ventures. These aren't new. It seems though it has taken a long time for the market to wake up and realize there is a problem. For example, free money for 10 years is maybe not the greatest idea. <laughs> I told you that's not the reason. It doesn't lead to the most <laughs> foolproof business plans. So people have talked about this being a classic bank run. I think this is sort of a very specific version of a bank run because SVB was concentrated on one particular sector. And then even more so on top of that, you had a handful of venture capital funds who were even more concentrated and really controlling the majority of the money. And they all pulled out at the same time, or a lot of them did. And that really led to this 
bank run, quote unquote. Watches are doing just fine though. Yeah, I was thinking if you want to flee to quality, use Rolexes. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, they are doing actually more than double the returns of the S&P since 2018, <laughs> which is fantastic. Not for me because I don't own a Rolex yet. <laughs> Audemars Piguet, uh, all those? Uh, yeah, no, not all, yet. Well, Omega. Uh, I prefer not to comment because then somebody will break into trade planning studios, as we call it. So, so <laughs> trade planning studios. So they are doing just fine. So if you are worried about keeping your money in Silicon Valley Bank, if you are an entrepreneur, just buy some Rolexes. I think you will be fine. Yeah, I mean, they're maybe a little less liquid than that, but I think we knew something would happen if you keep banging interest rates up and up and up. And this was a bank, as you say, very concentrated and an industry that's very tight-knit. So they decided, a lot of them decided they would leave at the same time. So much for sticking together in the whole technosphere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Entrepreneurs together. I've seen it called the beloved bank, but it wasn't that beloved. No, not, not when it's somebody else's money, it's beloved. When it's <laughs> your money, it's like, peace, see you later. But it's like a case from economics class 101, holding a lot of assets, these banks as reserves, the assets are losing value because interest rates are going up. These are government securities. So when they have to they get stuck, they have to sell, they're losing money, their capital's going down, and then people start to flee, especially when it's just one sector. So- I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I don't like to make fun of people's misfortune, but I really enjoyed seeing all of the libertarians from Silicon Valley and the tech bros who were busy spending 10 plus years telling us how government needs to get out of the way and let the private sector just do its thing and we don't need regulation and blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden they found Jesus over a weekend. Can you bail me out? Sorry. (laughs) Then they said the government needs to do something. And honestly, these are the guys who like months ago said that refunding people's student loan debts was not a good idea because... It is not a good idea because I already paid mine. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. So watches are doing great. Just buy them. Buy them. Or mine if you want. Used ones. Get the new ones. So the other thing we wanted to talk about is that China seems to be out in the cold and facing lower growth over the last couple of years. And at the same time, India is starting to flex its muscles economically and geopolitically. So India is predicted to surpass China as the world's most populous country and one that is much younger than China and most of the West, we should add. The IMF says that its annual economic growth will average 6.5% this year, which is a lot. And it's the fastest among 30 major economies, in fact. And they just displaced the UK as the world's fifth largest economy. And the UK is really trying hard this year. Insert Brexit joke. (laughs) (laughs) So it is is a burgeoning economic hub. It's huge with a Y. Huge. I have been banging on about Foxconn moving to India. And as it turns out, Foxconn is moving to (laughs) India. So that's just another tick in the RDA's right column. And as a result of this new economic power, we're also seeing on the flip side that India is not shy about using some of its own quote-unquote, wolf-warrior diplomacy, in this case with the Swiss. Yeah, and this last story, we walked by every day the Place des Nations in Geneva, and there was a there was a big protest there. It wasn't particularly well attended, which had big pictures of the lower castes of women who were being exploited in India and so on with lots of slogans. So the, the Indians called the Swiss in and said, you must stop these kinds of protests. You must stop this. And they used as leverage the fact that they're negotiating a free trade agreement. So the Swiss delegation had been there the week before or a couple of weeks before. European Union's also negotiating with India. They see this as a counterbalance to, to China, as an area of growth and so on. And apparently what the story in the Tribune de Genève seemed to indicate is that the Europeans actually called the Swiss and said, can you stop oh, with all this? <laughs> because we do need this whole agreement and thanks a lot and good night. And this is like a classic Chinese thing. You'll use your economic power to try to achieve geopolitical influence the conversation of the countries. So I think it's, I guess, another emblem of India's growing power. 
And we've always said, you know, India potential and so on, but it does seem to be getting there in terms of growth, as, as you said, also in terms of geopolitics. I think looking at this from afar, we've talked about how COVID has sped up things. We've talked about in this podcast, for example, just in the last few news stories. COVID has sort of sped up the supply chains moving to India because of certain reasons. So the U.S. and and other allies are talking about China flexing its muscles maybe a bit too much and moving supply chains to India because it's more closely aligned with the U.S.'s goals or the West's goals, I should say. I think we would just see the same thing happen in five to 10 years if India kept this trajectory. But it's interesting to see history repeat itself on such a short space of time. Yes. Thank you for agreeing with me. I agree. So Artie was right. Because he talked about that, it. Now. Yeah, that's the headline. Thanks, folks. I manifested it. Thank you. I manifested Ciao. it. You, there's, also, <laughs> there's also a bit, the last bit we want to talk about is... And another example of this geopolitical realignment helping us with a lot of things. So the U.S.'s pivot, the weak Asia pivot of IPEF, which wasn't going to talk about market access and so on, it seems to be getting saved by the fact that everybody wants to China line up with one side or the other and that U.S. v. China divorce a settlement. Or is being forced to, we should say. And well, or they're making decisions. So Japan and South Korea, for instance, have resolved a long, long standing issue related to the Second World War related to, to forced labor. And I think this mends ties, but it does so because they know, at least the analysis I read, says they needed to because it's time to line up. And you also wanted to talk about the tech war. It's interesting because all the things you talked about, if we're putting it all together and just taking a longer view of it, it's interesting how we're seeing now, whereas before we had seen that everything was led by an economic term. So we're building ties because economically it makes sense to have your supply chains in country X and then ship them over, blah, blah, blah. Now we're seeing geopolitical concerns taking precedence over the economic ones, and they're really leading the other. So one tail is wagging the dog. I don't know what the analogy is. The cart is wagging the horse. It was a movie about Albania in the 90s uh, (laughs) with Dustin Hoffman. Anyway, so now we're seeing the geopolitics sort of taking lead here, and that's very much the case with China's position in global supply chains. So it seems to be weakening as South Korea is, again, like you said, aligning itself more and more with the U.S., not only the U.S., but Japan as well. It's interesting to see because for the longest time, at least as long as I can remember, as I grew up, it was not the case where geopolitics was really dictating how you lined up your supply Certainly, chains. it seemed to be moving. The direction of travel was in the other direction. You were born after the Cold War. I entered graduate school I was actually Cold War. born just as Reagan said, tear down this wall. So maybe I'm like Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm the Jon Snow of millennials. He literally said, tear it down, and I came out. <laughs> This is exactly the sequence of history, folks, and now there's a podcast. And that's how I met your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. Dorothy Bowman Pauley is the director of the new Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights, launched in 2019 by the University of Geneva. My old job. Since 2013, she's also the research director at the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. Also my old job. As a scholar with extensive practical experience working on the implementation of human rights in multi-stakeholder settings, Doro has published widely on topics at the intersection of business ethics, corporate responsibility, private governance mechanisms, and human rights. For the last 10 years, she has been teaching business and human rights-related classes at academic institutions in the US and Europe, including the new semester course in business and human rights, part of the Bachelor in Economics and Management program at GSEM, UNIJ. My old job. So, Doro, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been two years now. I know I got this wrong in the last interview, but it's been the better part of two years now. It's your second time on the podcast, and we're happy to have you. So, we last spoke, I think, in March 2021, 
Can you tell us what have you been up to since? Hi, well, thanks for inviting me back. Indeed, it's been two years and um, well, I've certainly been busy institutionalizing my project, the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights. And we've institutionalized in the form of more research. We've published a series of research reports on children's rights, responsible cobalt sourcing, sustainable fashion, and a lot more. And we've also made huge progress in establishing human rights as a key component in business school education. And that's part of our core mission. Now at the University of Geneva, we have a master's program in which human rights are very central. And it's now also has a new name. It's called the Master for Responsible Management. And that shows it's really becoming part of how we teach business here at the University of Geneva. And I'm very proud of that. That's definitely true. I think that we're seeing a zeitgeist kind of change. I think if 20 years ago, you wouldn't really hear this much, or some people would talk about it in passing and not really do much about it. But now we're seeing this zeitgeist shift, as you say. However, in 2020 and 2021, since then, we saw that corporate responsibility, quote unquote, has slipped down the list of priorities. We had a pandemic to deal with, among other things, and it was pushed a bit down, uh, as well as sustainability. So Rob's favorite saying is, oil is the new oil. Oil is the new oil. And yeah. um, this is among many other issues. But uh, is it back on the agenda, or do companies still care when they're dealing with supply chain issues, climate, inflation, or other things like that? Yeah, you're making a strong statement here, and I don't fully agree with it. So I actually think that corporate responsibility has never slipped off the agenda. In fact, I think a lot of companies, and a lot more than ever before, deeply care. Of course, the sudden geopolitical shifts have changed business dynamics, but I think they've actually moved my field, business human rights, to the top of the agenda. I mean, Yale University tracks the businesses that have left Russia since they started the war in Ukraine. And over a thousand businesses have left Russia. And I think the motivations are mixed, but for many companies, human rights concerns are in the mix. And so to me, the world is in trouble, but these troubles create an ecosystem in which human rights are becoming more important than ever. I guess maybe if I were to rephrase that, so we've seen in the last couple of years for ESG, to use that term a bit more specifically, has been knocked down a few pegs because of the allegations of greenwashing, things like that. So with certain banks, I think it was Deutsche Bank and a few others that they're actually facing legal issues because of or the lack of ESG in the products they're selling to investors. Has that dented at all? Maybe it is a better question. It has been such a hot topic, but I think we need to differentiate between the debate in the US, which unfortunately has become terribly politicized, and the debate here, ESG, I think it remains hot in Europe and Europe is the driver of ESG. Most of the time, we only talk about the E, the S, the social component of ESG is where my field, business human rights, would fall under. And I still hope that we can use ESG as a major driver for the implementation of human rights in businesses. And that requires a lot more work on the S because right now the S is not very well defined and it doesn't capture human rights performance of companies. Very fragmented of an ill-defined mix of health and safety concerns, integrity and inclusion and the bits of everything, but not targeted industry specific human rights standards that should be part of the S. So we need to do work on this, but I'm still hopeful that we can use ESG to advance human rights and corporate practice. I think that takes us to the next question. You mentioned the EU is taking the lead. And in fact, they're also 
putting in place some regulations to try to somehow oblige companies to do this thing. So they put in due diligence regulations. They look at deforestation. They've got a taxonomy of financial products. They've got so many different things. I've sometimes described as an anvil of regulation that's about to fall on companies. Uh, And we see U.S. and China maybe either not moving in the same direction or not moving at all. Maybe the U.S. exception is they talk about forced labor, but in other areas less so. So is the EU really moving the needle globally or are they actually kind of making their market in some ways less attractive because of the coming regulation? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the latter is a main concern for companies that they become less competitive. But I think it's quite remarkable how quickly we've moved from soft law expectations, for example, in the form of the UN guiding principles for business human rights, which were adopted 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, to third law. I mean, on the horizon is at the EU level, legislation that requires companies to conduct mandatory human rights due diligence. And honestly, nothing but hard law gets companies to pay Mm. attention. (laughs) So the fact that it's on the horizon has already moved the needle in terms of the debate that we are having. I think the debate today is radically different than the one we had still 10 years ago where everything was nice to have an optional (laughs) That has changed. Now, I think the debate is about how do we do this? And to me, these are management challenges that can be solved. So again, I'm quite optimistic that EU companies that now have to comply with these new legislations and have to get prepared for these new legislations, will they have incentives to figure out business models that, as I would call it, align business and profits and principles. So I do not think that that is necessarily a trade-off, but particularly Mm. long-term, I believe this is just good business. And the EU is doing it, which will have a spillover effect for the rest of the world because the EU is a big market and many companies that want to do business with the EU have to comply with the same rules then. And so it will radiate to many other parts in the world, even if they don't have such legislation themselves. But for companies that operate multinational companies that operate globally, the EU regulation will set the bar. And I totally agree with you on the hard law, on the regulation. This is when people start to wake up and really think, okay, we have to start hiring lawyers and (laughs) we have to start hiring consultants. We have to start talking to the UN and stuff. So that leads me to another question, which is big companies, especially in rich countries, can do this. So what do you hear from poorer countries or smaller companies who don't have access to all this? Are they worried? Do they think it's a good thing? Well, I'm actually worried about what I would call the human rights bureaucracy that some of these mm. legislations now bring in the form of the need of producing reporting, etc. I'm also worried that the legal stick on the horizon has already set incentives for some companies to withdraw from particularly difficult mm. business contexts. And I've heard totally in off-the-record conversations that there's a silent withdrawal from difficult contexts already. So before this law actually comes into effect, companies are carefully scanning their global supply chain and they decide to withdraw from certain contexts because they have no idea how to remediate the human rights risks in that specific portion of their supply chain. And that is, of course, not in line with the spirit of the unguiding Mm. principles or the idea of doing business with human rights because, yeah, withdrawing should be a really last resort and engagement with the human rights risks should be the actual objective. So unfortunately, the hard law and the 
sanctions that come with it also sets can be counterproductive for human rights and that companies may give up too early <laughs> and move out quicker instead of getting together, trying to find solutions to these risks. I guess that leads us also to the next question, which is quite similar, and that's talking about cobalt, specifically in, in form of mining in the Congo. So we saw during the pandemic and a little bit after the price of cobalt shoot up as people all of a sudden wanted more Teslas and other electric vehicles or needed three extra phones like me or iPads, whatever it is. Cobalt is in all of these things, which are make up more and more of a disproportionate part of our lives, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. It's one of these key minerals in a critical supply chain the world has discussed, but we've failed to solve them until now. You were recently there. So what did you see and learn and what can people like us, whether that's consumers or people in the trade sphere more broadly, do to help improve the situation? Yeah, great question. Indeed, I've focused <laughs> a lot on the cobalt supply chain in the past three years because I think it's an emblematic example for the challenges of managing global supply chains and, of course, cobalt, again, is not commodity because we need it for all items that include rechargeable batteries. And, of course, the biggest driver for the cobalt demand right now are electric vehicles. So, indeed, I've been to the DRC in December. It was my second visit after a first research trip in 2019. And I wanted to go back after this pandemic to see how the situation for so-called small-scale artisanal miners has evolved since my first time I was there. These artisanal miners work with very basic tools and sometimes they're bare hands to extract this precious mineral from an incredibly rich earth in the DRC. And their production makes up to between 15 and 30 percent of the DRC's cobalt production which makes it the second largest cobalt market in the world. So it's not a side note, the artisanal cobalt production. It's the second largest producer of, the, of all the producers in the world behind the industrial production of cobalt in the DRC. And so there are estimated 100, 200, 300,000 artisanal miners in that one region in the DRC called the Katanga province. And so to me, this is a particularly difficult part of the supply chain, which we need to address because it's an industry challenge that downstream companies, electronic companies and electric car manufacturers need to acknowledge as an industry problem and need to come together to find solutions to acknowledge that artisanal mining is part of the cobalt supply chain and that they need to devise industry solutions to integrate and formalize these very common informal mining activities in the cobalt context. Do you think that because cobalt is such an essential component of things like EVs and other, yeah. do you think it's in a weird way, it'll be easier to formalize or to have them meet the, for example, future EU standards or US or for example, Chinese, if that's the case, do you think it'll make it easier for them because it's a mineral that they need and that is sort of found in abundance in one particular country? I would hope so, yes. There's no way around the DRC for cobalt because over half of the world's cobalt resource are, resources are based there and over two-thirds of the world's production of cobalt is happening in the DRC. So we cannot get around the DRC considering the growing demand for cobalt. And the fact that it's irreplaceable at this point may help to advance formalization projects. But it's still, you know, in a first step requires that downstream companies acknowledge the problems. 
What I currently see is that they're all investing in tracking and tracing technology to more effectively exclude artisanally mined cobalt from their sourcing practices, which will remain difficult because the smelters and refiners mix all cobalt that comes to them. And the smelters and refiners are in the DRC and in China. So there are multiple mixing points. And so the ore comes together. And I think there's not a single company in the world that could sign off on 100% assurance that no artisanally mined cobalt is in their product at this point. So obviously, we did have a couple of other questions for you unrelated to business and human rights. The first, I mean, you're a business educator. My daughter's applying for graduate school, and I recommended to her to use ChatGPT to do a personal essay. Did I do the wrong thing? Yeah, you did the wrong thing. (laughs) Um, Well, of course, a big topic now here at university. And so writing a college essay with it, I really wouldn't recommend because first of all, you should have greater confidence in your daughter. (laughs) And a research assistant. (laughs) Yeah. And I think particularly for this purpose, you want to come across as authentic. And the text that I've seen that um, ChatGBT produces, while impressive, is not very authentic. It's rather generic. So you want to apply with something where your voice and personality shines through. So I think on that, ChatGPT is particularly weak as of yet. May change in the future. And maybe one day we use ChatGPT as a writing assistant, but hopefully never for a college essay. Does that answer the question, Rob? You know, I mean, it shouldn't be kept from them. They should understand strengths and weaknesses and we should all test it out and play with it. I can see the headline, plagiarize responsibly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, podcast. So the last question, obviously, we have to ask you is you had admitted to having gone to Staten Island at some point in your prior life. Proudly, we may add. And that's fine. People do go to Staten Island sometimes. But have you been back? And if so, why? I haven't been back, but you won't believe this, but I'm considering taking a group of students there this summer. I'm organizing the Business Human Rights Young Researcher Summit at NYU Stern. And we always have a social event in the end, and I might do the ferry trip with them back and forth. Not sure if we'll get off. (laughs) We call that the Staten Island Shuffle, which is basically you get out of the ferry and go back on to the one going back to Manhattan. Or I do that for sightseeing purposes, indeed. And clearly also in Staten Island, there's a lot of ethical and human rights considerations. We got good pizza. If you can tell us a good brunch place in Staten Island, we might actually stay there and have brunch there and then come back Sure, sure. I'll get back to you on that. Do you like your pizza with or without a pineapple? (laughs) Well, Doro, thank you once again for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk after a couple of years. We'll be watching your work and we're excited to see what else you come up with. Thanks for your interest. Always fun with you. And if people want to know more, where would they go to to see, for instance, the Congo study or the upcoming work that you mentioned on the Amazon? You'll find everything on our website. It's Geneva Center for Business Human Rights.org. So GCBHR.org. So, Artie, that brings us to the next segment. This is where TS correspondent Michelle Olguin talks to us about the vibe shift and particularly whether globalization is yet dead. Over to you, Michelle. 
Today, we're taking a break from globalization, actually, to bring you the news that having a podcast is apparently a red flag, according to the New York Times. That's it weird. doesn't really matter what the podcast is about. Women just don't want microphones to be in the hands of men, apparently. This is probably because we've been drowning in podcasts where men just mansplain random things, not looking at anyone right now. And I sure, feel, it can I be annoying threatened. to have a guy talk to you about his podcast for the whole date, but I feel like it's mostly an orange flag because it It can go either way. But here are some very specific Geneva red flags that I found that are worse than having a podcast. And feel free to add your own, by the way. I feel threatened. Can I add that? <laughs> I feel triggered. I feel like one is going to trigger you specifically, Artie. Anyway, <laughs> but the first one is somebody who uses their UN badge outside of their UN job. So somebody you see on the bus or even worse, arrives to the date with a UN badge. What do you guys think? Just keep it around your neck just to know who's boss. I just take my ID off. No, no. Rob does it like the old dad style. He just keeps like dads used to have the phones on the belt clip. Rob keeps yeah. his badge on a belt clip and he just like pulls it when he needs it. So it's like sort of not key. as bad as around your neck. It's not nearly as bad, but it's sort of like a, not a humble brag. It's like a creepy brag. It's in my pocket now. It's like a low key showing off. Like I got it down here. I don't need to keep it around my neck because I'm too cool for school. What's the next I red flag? Like actually, I feel like this relates to the other thing where people offer you an internship at the UN. Is this a job interview or a date? That's that's seriously creepy. I'm glad I'm married already. It happens all the time. <laughs> next one is somebody who says they're honored about something on LinkedIn or somebody who adds you on LinkedIn right after a date, like doesn't add you on any other social media, just LinkedIn. Weird. I get a job interview. What are we doing? It's a low-key flex. Low-key, just look at where I went to school. Bizarre. And then we have people, or guys specifically, who get suits with very short sleeves to show off their watch. This is the thing that I just found out about. Artie, Artie do you, you do you that? To, why is everybody looking at me? <laughs> I actually don't do that because I have long arms, and if I have short sleeves suits, I would look like a carnival bar. I thought it was to show a little bit of shirt, but actually it, it makes me end up looking like the penguin oh, Batman shirt. movies. You can show shirt. Can, It's just yeah. your watch can go under the cuff. Oh. You know, it doesn't need to go. But you've got like a huge giant watch on because you're in like the dad mode. You got to show the big watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next red flag, advice? Michelle? Okay, anyway. the next one is very general, but it's if you're at Village du Soir in general, just no. I've never been there yet. Yeah, no, don't go. It's creepy. Why start now? Especially like a guy at Village Soir. Very creepy. The Cohen brothers were right. This is no country for old men. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old you are. This is not ageist. The second to last one is offers you to get some Nestle products at the employee store. Like, dude, I can get Nestle products at Micro. It's fine. It, I really don't need to save like one franc on this product. It's if, okay. If he really wanted to flex, he would tell you, I can get you Toblerone. It was marked from Switzerland with the actual Matterhorn before it's been sort of put the capital of Slovakia on instead. It sounds like it's going to become a new red flag around Geneva. <laughs> and the last one is having a picture or a sculpture of any political figure. And funnily enough, the one that comes to mind is Kofi Annan, because that's kind of a red flag, but any political figure will do. It's kind of weird. Thanks, Michelle. And I guess we'll get back to globalization and the red flags globalization presents next episode. So that brings us already to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So the first point, and I think this is really important to emphasize, is that spring has sprung here in Geneva. There's a chestnut tree atop Geneva's old town. 
It tells us it's time to start frolicking. Tradition began in 1818 when they began recording when the first leaf came out of the grand old tree. How do you know that? How? Why is the question? A better question. Why? It's on the wires. Why do you know that? I'm actually Swiss here and I don't know that. This is extremely important. If you don't know it, how do you know to frolic? Next year, you need to be ready for this. And amazingly, because the world's ending, it was in the normal range. Meaning? Between 5 and 24 March, the first leaf normally comes off the chestnut tree in Geneva. So spring is... I, I think I like the, uh, the, the beaver story better. Or is it the beaver? <laughs> the groundhog, excuse me. I like... The, at least they made a movie out of it. Bill Murray was in that one. I, everybody, look in our back catalog to find the beaver story. Now I can't... I don't know exactly Now I'm just going to switch and put my American hat on and say, this, this, this is not fun. <laughs> Next. Second, I think it's time to get out there and hit them. It's open season on cyclists. The... Cyclist hunger games. <laughs> the authorities in Geneva have announced that the most... Accidents between cars and bicycles occur in March, and uh, they occur because people are just taking their cycles out again, and people like you, Artie, are not watching for them, or maybe you are. <laughs> we don't know what's happening. Do you, would you like we, to comment on uh, that? A motorist call this hunting season, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Get your license, folks. I've never hit anybody with a yeah, car. Right. I will just say that right. I don't know why cyclists, especially in Geneva, are so surprised that they get hit by a car when they're driving literally in the middle of the street. Because they're a vehicle, just like everybody else. Yeah, Why aren't they in the middle of the street? They've got bike lanes, but they use the car lanes when they need to. And when they yeah. feel like it, they're a bike. Red lights don't exist for them. So they'll just jaywalk with a bike on. I feel like you're talking about me right now. Also, when you're on a bike, you're gigantic. You take up a lot of the street. Let's say for other folks who are not podcasters don't currently in front of a microphone, let's be careful out there. If you should see a cyclist. Or just don't drive a bike. Or if you're a cyclist, just go anywhere you want. Just walk. Just go ahead, you know, run red lights. Actually, anything else? cyclists are old news. Next episode, we're going to do in my new pet peeve, which is people with mopeds or trottinettes. Trottinettes. No, no. The which scooters. are even worse. Check our Twitter to understand what a trottinette is. So the last one, we know there's a concept of Swissness. This is an extremely valuable marketing gimmick. But now it's getting a little bit complicated. So we find this week U.S. cheesemakers can use the name Gruyere because U.S. courts don't really care. And Swiss chocolate guys can no longer use Swiss mountains on their chocolate because they are manufacturing some of their chocolate, Toblerone, in Slovenia. So what is Swissness anymore? As an American born in the U.S., hashtag Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> um, who's also Swiss. Yeah. I feel very conflicted at first, but I have to side with the Swiss on this one. You can't just call something Gruyere and not have it be from Gruyere. It's like calling something Woodford Reserve bourbon, but brewed in Meran, Geneva. First of all, you're making me thirsty, but also, how can Toblerone not have a Swiss mountain on it? Because it's, it's too harsh. It's brewed in Bratislava, that's why. Slovenia has nice mountains. They have nice hostels, if you've ever seen that movie, <laughs> but or not so nice hostels. But they don't have nice mountains. Not as nice as the Matterhorn. So, folks, you definitely have to buy your Toblerone now because uh, the Swiss be, mountains are going to be gone. Because the prices on the aftermarket of Swiss Toblerone with the actual Matterhorn will probably exceed that of secondhand Rolex. The Rolex. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, Toblerone, Rolexes, yep. then the S&P 500. So, if you're taking your capital out of SIV Bank. Just put it in Toblerone. What could go wrong? Last words of Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> Good night, folks. Well, folks, that wraps up episode 45 brought to you by Rhodium, the U.S. labor market, 
the newly minted socialist tech bros of Silicon Valley, and of course, the trees of Geneva. And thanks to Doro Bomanpoli for joining us to talk all things business, human rights, and of course, her favorite electric vehicle companies. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Ogin and Valentina Saponata for helping us highlight the vibeship, as well as in producing this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming you out. You can subscribe absolutely everywhere, right, Artie? You can survive like Donna Summer and you can subscribe to catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really on any 70s playlist <laughs> where you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we, meaning I, do read all of them and I pass them on to Rob. I don't know how to find them. It's the, ad, it's the digital ad versus analog thing. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen, listen responsibly. responsibly.